throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes clear that Jesus' mission was about bringing the good news to the last, the least, and the lost. That they too are included in God's kingdom. Even starting with the first words out of his mouth, right after he has been baptized and then tested in the wilderness, he goes to the synagogue and takes the scroll and reads from it Isaiah, in which it says, He has been anointed to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and release to the captives. He said this in spite of the fact that the good religious people didn't want to hear it. In fact, his message was to the very ones the good religious people said God did not love or include. It seems that according to the good religious folk, those lost last and least never had a chance to know that they were unconditionally loved and forgiven by God and invited to God's kingdom party just like everybody else. It was apparently just like everybody else that got the good religious folk all up in arms because you don't become good so that you can be just like everyone else. You become good so that you can be better than everyone else, more godly, more pure, and more righteous. I mean, who wants to be invited to a party where those people are going to come? At its most basic, the story about Jesus is about who gets invited to God's party. Tragically, too often at its most basic, the story of religion is about who does not. The conflict between the two is what this morning's text is all about. Three parables, three perfect parables. In Luke 15, 1, it begins, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety? the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Well, actually, no one does. That's why this is radical. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The third parable I will not read, but tell. It's the prodigal son story where the younger brother of two brothers goes to his father and asks for his inheritance, which was a complete ask, a complete uh, asking of his father's death, in, in essence. And, and, to, and to offer that inheritance, his father had to go against all Israeli law and custom. He had to sell the land 
the Holy Land, to give him that inheritance, where the younger son then went with it way away where he spent it in riotous living, the Bible says. And when he had come to nothing, with nothing to eat, he then got a job slopping pigs, which for a Jew was the lowest of low. And at that point, the story says, he came to himself. And we like to think he repented at that point, but the story, I think, is clear that what it means he came to himself was, my gosh, I've bottomed out. I have no other choice. I better come up with something. And so he schemes to go back to his father and asks his father's forgiveness, saying that he'll take on a job as a hired hand. When the father sees the son coming up the road, as he sat on the porch waiting for his son day after day to return, the father jumps off the porch and runs down the road to embrace his son, which was so against the Oriental Middle Eastern culture for a father to run after his son that way. Didn't matter. The father went, embraced him, and then led him back in to the home. The rest of the story, of course, is that the elder brother who was out in the field working his fingers to the bone, as we used to say in the South, for his father, heard that there was this party being planned, and then he heard that there was this music. And so he went down as far as the front door and summoned his father out of the party where his father had put the younger son on the head of the table with a big old signet ring and a cloak and had killed the fatted calf. And the elder brother said, How can you do this to me? the one who has served you so diligently. And the father said to him, you're welcome to the party, son. And the story ends without telling us which way the son went. There's an old story about a flight leaving from New York to Paris, halfway over the Atlantic Ocean, when the captain steps in on the intercom and says, I have some good news and bad news. The bad news is, by some reason of our instruments, we are completely lost. The good news is we're making record time. (laughs) These days, with smartphones tracking our every coordinate by the nanosecond, being lost is hard to admit, even though it seems we are making record time. I was talking to a teacher last week in Knoxville while visiting my daughter and granddaughter, who teaches English literature at one of those highly gifted high schools there, and I asked her to tell me about her classes. I mean, do students use iPads and iPods and so forth? Oh, absolutely, she said. Almost every student either has an iPad or they have a laptop of some sort that they use in class. I said, really, how does that work? She goes, well, you know, we try to send them the syllabus and maybe I'll send my lecture or maybe there'll be some graphs and so forth that they can plug into. And I said, no, but how does it work for you? She goes, it doesn't work very well at all. In fact, it's really strange for me to look out on the class and see all the students there looking on their computers with earbuds in their ears. I was incredulous. You mean they have the earphones in their ears while you're lecturing? Yes. How do you even know that they're following your lecture? I don't. They could be playing games for all I know. How does that, I mean, how does that work? She goes, well... We treat them as adults. It's a gifted school, after all, and we expect them to get the material. And so if they choose not to listen to the lecture, then they pay the consequences. And I make sure to include in the lecture a lot of things that will be on the exam that they cannot find anywhere else. 
It occurred to me that not only are those students lost in cyberspace, but so is the whole administration. Look, I admit I'm old-fashioned, but allowing students to play video games with their iPhones in in class, I just don't get it. Lost. Okay, maybe that's a little harsh. Maybe it's a little hyperbolic. Confused, maybe, or wandering, or just misdirected. No, lost. It means to be so far from home you have absolutely no idea how to get back. And although I am using an iPad for you today as a demonstration that I am not a Luddite, becoming lost in the midst of our technological world is a lot easier than we think. It's not just young people. I was at a dinner party recently where we sat around a table with eight of us, and pretty much the whole time, one of the gentlemen there had his iPhone open on his lap, looking at it and texting through the whole dinner party. It's not just men who refuse to admit the fact that we get lost, by the way. It's a part of the human condition to deny that we are in such a hopeless state and that we've bottomed out and have no other choice. Even then, it's sometimes hard for us to admit. To admit lost? Uh-uh. I remember meeting with a woman in Atlanta who had made some very bad choices in her life and her world was going south fast. And she came to see me to talk about it. She had alienated herself from her husband and her children and even her parents and I knew that my first job for this woman was to listen to her. And so in order to get her to hopefully speak openly and honestly, I simply asked her to share what she was feeling by saying, you know, you must feel completely lost. She squinched up her face and said, no, no, I'm not lost. I'm just, I'm just trying to find my bearings. As I understand it, being lost and trying to find your bearings are the same thing. Only one sounds better than the other. It's like saying when you're lost that you are lost! With all the drama that that means. An admission of being completely out of control, having no clue where to go next, which for us mainline Presbyterian professional people does not come easily. So now, like that captain, I have some good news and some bad news. Every one of us, this is the bad news, is at one time or another lost. Certainly on the downside of things, we know the drill, depression, despair, addiction, illness, broke, alone or alienated, lower than the knee on a caterpillar. But sometimes, Adversely, even when we are flying high and think that we have the world by the tail, we're one step away from falling into the deep well of lostness. Lost in our need to be perfect. Lost in our need to control or in our self-righteousness or in our religion or whatever it is that gives us a false reading of our bearings in relationship to God. Now, if the bad news is that we are prone to being more lost than we are willing to admit, then the good news is, by God's grace, 
Jesus came to find us there. The story's clear. It's the good people who don't know they're lost who don't get it. The religious righteous authorities were grumbling and complaining to Jesus that he's spending too much time with sinners and tax collectors. Nothing worse than a tax collector in those days because they were collecting it for Rome. All the riffraff and the derelicts and the down and outs of his day, they were the ones who had been thrown out by church and society, alienated from the mainstream of life and kicked over to the gutter by everyone in charge. So Jesus tells three parables about something lost and found, a sheep, a coin, a son. What's interesting is that the lost get found in all three stories, not because of anything that they have done to find their way back. I mean, when you're lost, you don't find your way back. It's what it means to be lost. They get found because of the action of something or someone else. The shepherd went in search of the lost sheep out of the 99. The woman in the house searched diligently until she found the coin. And even the son could not find his way back home. He was simply willing to accept being a hired hand. It was his father who greeted him on the road, embraced him, and brought him back home that included him back into community. In every case, being found came from the initiative of someone else. In every case, it was an act of grace. This is the good news. I had a friend in college who got lost in the drug culture, and he moved into a nasty old house in Carborough, North Carolina, with a bunch of other druggies, and it soon became clear that he was not budging We cajoled him and pleaded with him. He would not come out. Then one day, his older brother put the John boat on the back of his Jeep and drove the four hours he needed to to get to Carborough, and he drove up in front of the house of his younger brother, and he walked inside, and he grabbed his younger brother off the couch and literally carried him out and threw him in the back seat of the car, and then he went in and got his younger brother's stuff and threw it in the back of the bus And he told the people there, do not stop me or you'll pay the price. And he drove home and brought his brother back. And it was a long road back. It was not instantaneous. But for my friend, that journey back is the thing that he celebrates the most in his life with joy and thanksgiving for the grace that picked him up and carried him home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. It means lost, like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So deeply personal. But you know, the story doesn't stop there, does it? There is more going on here than just another revival event where one lost person gets called to the altar by the preacher while the congregation sings without one, just as I am, without one plea. Did you notice in the parables that while what was lost was varied, but the end result was always the same? The end result was a party, 
a celebration of joy when all of the neighborhood and the clan and the tribe and the community were called together to celebrate that the one who has been lost has now been found. And the father throws this party with tenderloin and New York strips with the only prime beef that he had to throw it with, his one and only fatted calf. And Jesus makes clear after telling these three parables that the end result of our being found, the whole point of this is that we are now brought back into relationship and into community. Being found means being restored to our status as a human being together with everyone else. Like everyone else. Unless, of course, it is the elder brother or the good religious people who are so lost in their own self-righteous grandiosity that they refuse to believe that they can be found too. If this is true, then the joyful restoration of God back into community is what this is all about. And therefore, the most demonic thing that a church can ever do is to excommunicate a member who wants to stay in community. If this is true, and I think it is, then God's will is to find all the people who have been alienated and separated and excommunicated and shut out and bring them to the party of all parties. And God's will is that God is willing to go to whatever lengths and depths, even to the depths of hell, in order to find those people and bring them back home. Us. There is no place we can be so lost that God cannot find us. I hope you understand how impossibly radical this is. For God, the resolution to the lost, broken, and sinful ways of us creatures is to bring us back home and throw a party. Putting us at the head of the table, it's radically insane if you think about it. I mean, what kind of justice is this? What kind of God is it who will throw all pride and justice aside to run off the porch and find us on our way home to even demean himself in order to show us how much we are loved just as Christ did on the cross to light the dark path for us back home so that when we find ourselves returning we will find that everybody has gathered there and simply shout surprise. We've been talking lately to the deacons and staff and other folk about the issue of why so many younger people in our world no longer want to attend church. And when I ask younger people about this, specifically my two daughters, 28 and almost 27, what they say about it for their friends and probably for themselves is that, you know, Dad, most of us, think of church as a place where only good, religious, self-righteous people are. People where they're not willing to accept those who might look lost, like maybe gay people or minorities or immigrants, those with piercings in their ears or purple hair. Also, they say, it just doesn't seem relevant anymore. They are spiritual, they say, but not religious. This is the category of choice these days, spiritual but not religious, S-B-N-R, which means 
entirely unaffiliated and disconnected from organized and institutional religion. Now, I admit I'm old-fashioned, but it seems ironic that spiritual but not religious seems to be just as much a denomination as does Presbyterian, but what do I know? After talking about this at our staff meeting last week, Rebecca found this blog by Roger Wolseley called Spiritual But Not Giving a Damn. She sent it around, and it says, The rules of the spiritual but not religious church is that everyone is a free agent to do whatever they want in any way they want without being responsible to a greater whole. Meditation, yoga, posting cool quotes and pictures on Facebook, they are exploring their shadows, circling, and learning how to divorce themselves from their elders and traditions to become authentic selves. Good for them. The trouble is, for too many of these spiritual unaffiliateds, their spirituality begins and ends with them and their own experience. In other words, what's good for them isn't good for us. The collective us, the community, you know, the other seven billion people on the planet. The spirituality of these unaffiliateds is obvious as they walk around on our streets, shopping malls, even driving while looking down at their iPods and iPhones. It's not an accident that these gadgets are called I and not we. He goes on to say in bold print, you can't come to know God by yourself. It always takes community, a community of fellow believers who you share life with and who help you to grow and to be the best you can be as you journey together. Jesus' parables seem clear to me, at least. Being lost is not an individual experience, and neither is being found. Walked into Starbucks last Sunday on our way home from Knoxville around church time, about 11.15, and I noticed there were 40 people sitting around in the coffee shop. Almost every seat was taken, and every one of them had their eyes downward glued to an iPad or iPhone or some other device. There was no conversation no sense of community, no party, no fun, lost in eye space because somehow they have been led to think, I guess, that church is only for the righteous and good people and not for them. So Starbucks is a safer and more accepting community, I guess, only it didn't seem like community to me. Then I looked up and I saw Jesus wander in he seemed to know everyone by name, Jack and Bob, Alice, everyone. Called them out. When we got their attention, he pulled up a chair and he sat down and, and he said, I, I'm here to tell you about a party. It's going to be an incredible party that, uh, that we're throwing. And I want you to, to text all your friends. Uh, maybe it will even go viral that they're invited. Every, everyone's invited. We're going to have great music, rock and roll, or blues, or swing, or whatever. You, we'll have all every kind of music. The only uh, the only condition is you can't you can't bring your earbuds. Everybody will be singing together in this party, and people will be dancing. Even the Baptist. It will be a full banquet with plenty of wine or juice, whatever your need. Fresh baked bread, everyone will be there, even the religious people, I hope. 
it will be crazy. The people there looked at him as if he was crazy, then turned back to their iPhones and their iPads. After all, it just seemed to be too good to be true. But true it is, you see. Whether we can believe it now or later, one day we will, iPhone or not, when we've been there 10,000 years. Did you catch it? When we've been there from I was lost to now, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. All of us singing together just like everyone else. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.